So this is a laundry basket. I know. Thank you. Thank you. I know many of you probably saw the Facebook post or came in and opened a worship guide and said, what is going on? Curtis, could you come back a day early? That would be good. (laughs) My goal is not to insult your intelligence, but if you will bear with me, I have a few observations about said laundry basket. A laundry basket is something that we encounter and interact with every day. It's something that was created to take dirty things to where they can be cleaned. It's something that, if used properly, is rarely empty. Also, if we use this properly, we become better at using it. And lastly, when we don't use it properly, people notice. And it can have a great effect on our relationship with other people. Amen? Okay, good. You're with me. This is a toothbrush. Promise it's the last one. We're not going to do this all day. This is a toothbrush. And like the laundry basket, it's something we hopefully interact with every day. Its sole purpose is for regular cleaning. If used properly, it can lead to good health. And if used improperly, people notice. And it can have a drastic effect on our relationship with other people. This morning I want to submit to you that like a laundry basket and like a toothbrush... Psalm 51 has a lot in common. We read in Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. In the very middle of this sermon, he stops and talks about prayer. And he says, when you pray, you should pray like this. And he goes into a series of things that he said, when you pray, you should be asking for personal surrender. And he uses that by saying, we need to be praying Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. There's an element of that prayer that deals with confession and forgiveness when Jesus says, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. There's an element of protection from temptation when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And right in the middle of this lesson on prayer, there's a phrase that he put in there that said, and give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer that Jesus is saying, every day these are things we need to be asking for. Every day this is something that we need to be surrendering to God, something we need to be confessing to God, and something that we need to be saying, God, protect me because I know what's coming. And even the things I don't know what's coming, I need your protection because you do know. And we may look at the issue of confession and go, I've done that, Chris. Why are we hitting that this morning for the whole time? That often in Christianity we can have this, this response that, I'm a, that I did confession at one point and it started my relationship with God. And because I'm covered by the blood, I never have to confess again. Let me give you an illustration that may help my point this morning. Carrie and I have been married for 12 and a half years. And 12 and a half years ago, we stood on a stage like this one, in front of our, my senior pastor, her youth pastor, our family and friends in the room, and we made promises, commitments to each other. I promised her that I would love her every day for the rest of my life, and she made the same promise to me. Now, in 12 and a half years, 
If I had ever slighted her, done something wrong, and I decided, as I'm stewing in the garage, pretending like I'm fixing something, because I'm not. But if I was in there going, I don't need to confess this, right? She made a promise to always love me, and no matter what I did, that promise is still there. How do you think our relationship would go if that was the case? Confession is something that starts our relationship with God, but David would say it doesn't stop there. Confession is something that sustains our relationship with God. Because there's the start of it going, I need to recognize that I'm a sinner. I need to recognize what you've done for me. I need to beg for forgiveness and ask you to lead me. And that starts it. But if I want this relationship to go well, as I want my relationship with Carrie to go well, then I need to continually be going, God, I want this to be right. I don't want anything in our way. And when we realize our relationship with God, I heard a pastor once say, when, when you feel far from God, you need to recognize that it wasn't God that moved. That when we feel distant from God, when we're going, in this relationship, I'm the only one who messes up. So there's a whole lot that I need to be coming to you to confess. Before we dive into Psalm 51, will you pray with me? Father, we've just sung some pretty powerful words. We've sung words of, of your death on the cross. We've sung words of your, your sacrifice for us. Your rising from the dead to show your power over death, over sin. Father, we've, we've sung words like, let no one caught in sin remain. And we've sung that we're prone to wander. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, as we look at what Psalms has to say for us this morning, that we can have a softened heart to know what we need to be in the habit of doing, to know what it is that that we need to be building up, to know what it is that we need to be bringing before you on a daily basis. God, give us that wisdom. Give us the courage to change what we need to change and to to own up to what we need to own up to. Father, bless us now as we read your word, as we study it. Allow these to be your words, not mine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 51, before we get to verse 1, I want us to look at the header. There are two phrases in this header that give us an idea of what's going on. The first one, it says, to the choir master. This is a common thing David writes in the Psalms. But in this case, when we think about the idea of confession, we think we confess in our own private prayer closet. We confess perhaps in the quiet of the morning before the day gets going. It's just me and God. So why in the world would David go for confession? Let's, let's preach it to the choir so the choir can teach the congregation. Why is this something that we want to make the, a point there? And David is going because not that we need to, to put up an open mic and just let everybody go, but because it's something that we need to be aware of constantly that we need to be confessing. So I wanted to make that point that David is saying this is a public thing that we need to continually be reminded of. The second statement there is this. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is one of the few psalms that actually gives us a context of what's going on in the life of the author as they're writing this. So if you would bear with me, if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This story may be very familiar to many, but I don't want to just skim over it in case it's unfamiliar to you. I want to be able to dive in and even help us see a little bit 
more of perhaps where David finds himself before he writes this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is an uh uh-oh moment for David. And like many of our moments where we can go, oh, this isn't good, I need to figure a way out of this, we don't often turn to confession, we turn to another option, that perhaps I can get this to happen, perhaps I can get this to happen, and what often ends up happening is that our sin compounds on sin and gets piled on sin. Until we go, there's no way I can confess it at this point because it would just unravel the whole thing. We find out David realizes he's done something wrong. And he realizes this is the wife of Uriah, one of his great generals out fighting. So he sends word to Joab, send Uriah back to me. He goes, Uriah, you fought a great fight. You've got some great victories. You've been a tremendous servant of mine. So can I... Can I bless you with the opportunity to come home and, and spend some time with your wife? And your eyes a man of character and says, No, if my men don't get to do that, I'm not going to do that. David goes, Oh, well, okay, there goes plan A. So plan B, I know, come have dinner with me tonight. And at least bless me with that honor of, of eating with you. Tell me the war stories. And at dinner, David's trying to get him drunk. And after dinner, he tries to send him home, but we find out Uriah decided to sleep on his own doorstep and not go in. And so David is kind of like, you're leaving me no choice, Uriah. He writes a note to Joab, and he seals it, and he sends it with Uriah, and the note is saying, send Uriah to the busiest part of the battle where he will certainly be killed. Joab sends word back and says, king, your order is fulfilled, he's dead. We find out at the end of chapter 11 and verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. This last statement is quite powerful. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God sends Nathan the prophet to talk to David. And Nathan tells this story, and the goal of the story is to lure David into indicting himself, and David does so beautifully. And David gets irate at this man in the story who took one poor man's lamb when he had a whole bunch of others, and he's going, this is is what should happen to this man, and this is what should happen to this man. And Nathan looks at him and goes, that's you! And we find out after Nathan has explained the story, after David has faced reality, verse 13 hits in chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
At this point, David sits down to write Psalm 51. But here we find a man in 2 Samuel who has not confessed in a long time. You see a habit of, of not discussing things with God, of not making godly decisions. From verse 1, he, he should have gone to war. That's where all the other kings were. That's what all the other kings were doing. And so even when we find him in his own house, what's he doing? He's on a couch. There's not another job he needed to do. The job he was supposed to do, he gave up. He also knew when to walk out on the roof. There was a, there's a tradition, there's a, just a part of their culture at the time was somebody every morning had to go get buckets of water and their bathtubs were on top of their house with high walls so there was still privacy but they would get the buckets of water in the morning, take them up, fill the bath and then as the warmth of the day came, it would warm up the bath so by the end of the day, you had a nice warm bath to cool off and to finish your day with. David knew this. David knew just about the time that the end of the day came for everybody. And now because of his decision to not go to war, he knows all the men are gone. So it just so happened he's walking around the roof at this time of day. As you continue thinking through these elements of the story, the premeditation begins to reek. He goes even so far as he knew, I believe he knew exactly who to look at. When he's inquiring about who this woman is, you can hear it in the voice of the person saying, don't you know this is Bathsheba? This is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. These are names he's not just saying. These names mean something to David. This is your friend's wife. This is your friend's daughter. You know who she is. Lust leads to deception, leads to murder. So as David writes Psalm 51, I want us to realize this morning that Psalm 51 is the way people feel about their sin if they're born again. If we're not born again, we don't feel that bad about our sin. And so this is a prayer of a believer. It's a confession of a believer going, I've completely messed up. So what I want us to look at this morning are four components of godly confession. So if confession is something we should be doing on a daily basis, what does it look like? And I'd implore you, if you're going, confession is really not my thing, it's not where I am used to that kind of a prayer life, I'd encourage you to pray Psalm 51 every day this week. This will get that going. But there are four components that that are in this psalm that I believe we can put into our own words, we're encouraged to put into our own words, but that hopefully encourage us to establish a habit of confession. Point number one in godly confession is we see David turns helplessly to the love and mercy of God. Verse one starts, Have mercy on me, O God. And I stop at that phrase because I think this is David, this is a king who has heard hundreds, if not thousands of times, have mercy on me, O king, and people coming before him to go, here's my plight, here's my question, here's what I'm begging for you, but here's my one shot 
at getting a response from the king. Here's my one chance to go, please hear me before you dismiss me. So he's getting the idea here of what agony and stress and all that can come, the, the guilt that can even come in presenting yourself to a king. He's going, I'm presenting myself to you with the exact same phrase. Have mercy on me, O king. Have mercy on me, O my God. According to your love, according to your abundant mercy. He realizes that he tried to fix it on his own and fell flat on his face and hurt a whole lot of people. So step one is that we turn helplessly to the love and mercy of God. David realizes as well that in life there are guilty people who will not see mercy. And he realizes that there are guilty people who through some mysterious work of God that can only be seen at the cross, that can only be seen at his mercy and grace at choosing us, that those people will will see mercy. And David is begging for his life. He's begging for mercy here. He even is looking back at Jewish history to go, I know when Abraham messed up, there were some punishments, and what he did was lie about his wife being his sister. Moses didn't get to go in the promised land because he had a rock with a stick. I did way worse than that. And so he's begging, begging God. The second component of godly confession is that we need to pray for forgiveness and cleansing. We see words throughout this psalm, verse 2, of wash me, cleanse me. In verse 7, purge me, wash me. His goal is that he's whiter than snow. John Piper writes this. The cross is not the reason we don't ask for forgiveness. It's the basis of our confidence that when we confess, the answer is always yes. He's saying this has to be an element of of our communication with God. This has to be a regular thing. And too often we can rely on, well, the cross that I'm forgiven, and he's going, no, the cross says that we don't have to to ignore it. We can't ignore it. We have to run daily to it. And thankfully, when we do, the answer is always yes. David uses a reference here in verse 7 of purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was the plant that in Exodus 12, if you remember the, the last plague in Egypt, Moses was given word to spread the blood of the sacrifice over the doorposts and to use hyssop branches to do so. David is, is referring back to that exact same experience, saying, in that case, there was death all over the place. And rightly so. And he's going, but for me... Please wash me. Please let this hyssop be a reminder of what you've done in Egypt. Now these first two points are one for me that, that seem pretty natural. It seemed when I come to the end of myself and I realize I can't solve anything, I need to turn to something greater than myself. And as a Christian, obviously that is to turn to God. And then to pray that, that what's been done for me, to pray that, that what I've done can be cleaned and washed away. But these next two points are ones I've struggled with. Ones that are completely against my nature, completely against our culture, 
They're a lot harder. Point number three, David confesses the depth and the greatness of his sin. This is why this point is so hard to me. Because if I'm confronted by a sin, somebody says, oh, did you, why did you say this to this person? That my instinct is not to own up to it. My instinct is to downplay it. My instinct is to explain it away, to go, well, you should have heard what they said. That would explain why even, you know, they're the ones you really need to address. I want to do everything I can to make it not look as bad as it is. I want to do everything I can to maybe deflect the guilt onto somebody else. But here David is going, no, the only thing I can do, the only way to make this right is to confess the greatness of my sin. And by greatness, I don't mean a good thing. I mean, he belabors the heaviness of his sin. We find it in several places. In verse 3, he says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. In other words, when I wake up in the morning, there it is. When I go to bed at night, there it is. When I go through my day, there's constant reminders of my bad decision. You got one of those from 20 years ago? That even though we want to go, I I believe I'm forgiven, I believe I'm, I'm... I've confessed it and I've received the washing that there's still reminders of this. This past weekend at snow camp, we looked at the prodigal son in Luke 15. And in our discussion, the thought came up that I want us to think for a second about what the day after looked like for the prodigal son. So you have a tremendous day. You come home quite heavy, quite guilt-laden, You've blown everything, and you're just hoping your dad lets you work in the fields with the other servants. And here the father comes running back to you, embraces you, puts a ring on your finger that you're family now, again. He yells for his servants to kill the fatted calf, the one that's reserved for an honored guest that, that, that whenever somebody that would be that honorable would come through, you had to be ready to serve them something great. And here the father's going, this is great. I want to kill the fatted calf for you. And he invites his friends, and there's this massive party, right? The next morning, imagine with me. You wake up, go downstairs to get your cup of coffee, because even every imaginary morning starts with coffee. And you're sipping your coffee, looking out at the southern fields or whatever else was out here, and you go, that doesn't look right. Dad, Dad, did you hire some new people? Or did you build something new out there? What's going on? The dad says, son, that's the field I had to sell to give you what you wanted. You begin looking around the house. There's furniture missing. Mom's not wearing the jewelry she used to wear. There's artwork down. All of that is a reminder of half of the inheritance that you squandered. Is he forgiven? Absolutely. Is he brought back into the family? Absolutely. Is there love? Yes. Is there still the reality that there are consequences to your decisions? Yeah. So there are many under the flag of Christianity saying, turn to Christianity and it all just becomes great. You don't have to worry about pain or suffering, any of that again. And in reality, if we understand our enemy, why would Satan come after people that are already on his side? He wants to tear us down. So when we come to God, he's going, ah, you're now on my most wanted list. Difficulties will be there. Challenges will be there. And in this case, David is going, I need to own up to it right now. I can't escape it. Verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. 
He is not at all downplaying the number of people that he has hurt because of his sin. But he is recognizing that sin by definition is against God. And he's going, God, I knew I shouldn't commit adultery. I knew I shouldn't commit murder. I knew I shouldn't deceive and bear false witness. Well, there's three of the Ten Commandments I've already shattered. And he certainly needs to go and make things right with Uriah's family and Bathsheba and the servant that he brought into his own rooftop porn session. But he's going, God, this is against you. Verse 4 again, he says, so that you may be justified and blameless. He's saying, God, if somebody brought this to me, I would be completely just in my kingship and my authority to completely wipe this away, to completely go, get out of here. None of this is going to happen. So he's saying, I recognize that what I'm bringing to you, you have complete right to send me away. Then he says in verse 6, you teach me wisdom. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's saying, I knew better. This teach isn't just a present tense teach. It's a, it's a past tense. It's going, we've had this lesson before. We've been through this. I should have known better. I have no excuse. David writes in Psalm 32, even the idea of confession was something he should have known about and should have done. He says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Night and day, your hand was heavy on me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and praise God you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The last aspect, the biggest challenge to me of godly confession is that David begs for renewal. David begs for renewal. A verse I didn't put up on the slide in verse 8, the phrase that even as Champ was reading it jumped out at me, let, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is a reference to what David wrote in Psalm 23 about God being a good shepherd. As we may picture those precious moment statues with the shepherd and the sheep over his shoulders and it's really nice and cute. The story behind all that is that that sheep had wandered off one too many times to where the shepherd had to take his staff and break the front legs of the sheep so that it wouldn't keep doing that. That's why the shepherd is carrying it. That's why we get phrases in Psalm 32 of, you make me lie down in green pastures. I don't have another choice. If I'm going to live, i got to follow what you got for me. But then you restore my soul there. So he's begging God, I, I'm broken but let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He says in verse 10, created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit in me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verses 16 and 17, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you remember, David is still in the Old Testament. He's living in a sacrificial system. When you needed to confess, you went and you got a spotless lamb or goat or whatever the sacrifice called for. You killed it and made an offering. And by the, the, the sacrifice of that blood, it cleansed you from your sin. David is realizing, 
God, what brings you pleasure is not dead livestock. What brings you pleasure is that in the process of that, in the process of needing to kill something that didn't do anything wrong on my behalf, I need to think about changing some things. And so not only am I going to go, God, please wipe the slate clean, but now, God, I need a new direction. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me go back to a point where I completely got it. In the New Testament, when many of the authors would write about Jesus being our Savior, not many words removed from that was also the word Lord. Some examples of that are 2 Peter 3 verse 18 where Peter ends his letter saying, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And and Jude ends his letter as well. To the only God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. They're grasping this idea of begging for renewal, of saying, God, in the past I needed to be my Savior. I needed to wipe the slate clean. But to stop there is to cheapen grace. To stop there is to go, thanks for, for, for paying my debt, now I'm going to go spend my money again however I wanted to. If we're free from prison, should we be living lives that look like we're still in prison? David recognizes, I need to ask you to be my savior and to wipe the slate clean, but then in the next breath, I need to ask you to be my Lord and direct me and guide me. And that's where this this practice of confession can be. This is where this struggles for me because I want to go, I'm living in grace. I'm totally forgiven. I can do whatever I want. No. Paul says in Romans 6, so we keep on sinning so that grace can abound. God forbid. Because I want this relationship to be right. God, I need you to guide me where right is. So is confession a part of our regular habits? Have we simply asked Jesus to be our Savior and stopped there? Or have we asked Him to be our Lord? Because you see, confession is like a laundry basket. We need to be interacting with it every day. The more we use it, the better we are at it. The more we use it, the less it's empty. And if we don't use it, it has drastic effects on the relationships we have with other people and with God. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for David pouring out his soul to you, begging, pleading, being incredibly authentic that he recognizes what he's done and he wants to make it right. God, our goal as followers of you is just that, that we don't just come and and get a get-out-of-hell-free card and can go on and do whatever we want, but out of gratitude, out of a desire to have our relationship have nothing between us, that we can say, God, I have to confess some things. I have to make things right with you. And God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. We do not take that lightly. Because you are completely just to not forgive us. 
And yet you promise us that nothing can remove us from your hand. God, we do not deserve this kind of grace. Father, I pray as we leave this place, I pray as we, as we go throughout the rest of our week that when we encounter a laundry basket, when we encounter our toothbrush, we're reminded to confess to you. Father, I ask your blessing on the rest of our time. I pray now as we end our service, that as we think through the, these opportunities that we have to confess, these people here who love us, who care for us, who may even be able to help walk us through and guide us how we can begin this lifestyle of confession. God, I pray that we would move when the Spirit responds. We would respond as the Spirit moves. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.